0: It's time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Karpel and your golden years.
1: welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and Your Golden Years this evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmarakarpel.com and also now on Apple Podcasts. And today is Sunday, November the 14th, 2021 and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell and we are back live from Austin, Texas. And Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here to make the show run smoothly as usual. And we have another great program in store for you this evening. In a little while after the break, we'll be joined by keynote speaker, consultant and author Annette Simmons to talk about her latest book, "Drinking From a Different Well: How Women's Stories Change: What Power Means in Action." And then later on, I'll talk a little bit more about caregiving and still living a passionate life as a caregiver. And throughout this evening's program, we will have time to take your questions. So if you have any questions or comments for me or for my guests, please feel free to give a call. The toll free number is 855 345 4720. That's 855 345 4720. Or you can email your questions to me, and I will read them on the air to my guest. And my email address is drmara, D-R-M-A-R-A, at Dr. drmarakarpel dot com. And you can hear this evening's program again later tonight um, and get all the information, any uh, website links or downloads that we talk about during the program by going to my website drmaricarpell dot com and all of that will be posted later tonight, and you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the program by going to blog b l o g talkradio dot com slash your golden years, and it's also on Apple Podcasts five minutes after the show ends. And for upcoming programs um, and to find out about upcoming events. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Pell, Your Golden Years, and you can also hear all of the previous shows that we have done on Blog Talk Radio by going to my website and going to that link, BlogTalkRadio.com/slash Your Golden Years. This program is produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions, and sponsored by A Mighty Good Time.com. Wondering what to do after you're 50? How about having a mighty good time? It's free to search, free to post, and much more, whether it's in person or virtually. Anything can be found to fill your day with others that are in your age group. So be more active and start filling your days. Go to amightygoodtime.com. That's amightygoodtime.com. All right, we're going to take a brief break um, to play some of our other sponsors commercials it's going to be very brief so don't go anywhere and we'll be right back with Annette Simmons to talk about her book drinking from a different well how women's stories change what power means in action so don't go anywhere we'll be right back
0: super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors
1: and we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Karpel and Your Golden Years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on com. And now joining us on the phone, we have keynote speaker, consultant, author Annette Simmons, and she's here to join us to talk about she's joining us to talk about her latest book. Welcome Annette. Well, I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm okay. Um, I just want to mention there's a, and I want our audience to know too. There's a slight delay when we talk like this, so it just helps to keep that in mind. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to talk about your latest book and everything that you're doing. Um, so, so maybe Annette, what we can start with is your background. Tell us about your background. Well okay
2: um I uh was born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana, and then lived in australia and 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 that that shift between you know two different worlds and two different narratives of what's important and what's not kind of loosened my assumption that I know what's going on. actually, the truth is that in Australia that beat it out of me uh i, I, I was raised to be confident, uh, to be the American sort of I know what's going on and my name is Annette and I'm good at this, this, and this. And they just laughed at me. Um, And so Uh it was formative. It was formative. And and I began to realize that there are different ways. Everybody's looking at the same things in different ways. And and if I could understand that better, I could probably help groups come to uh, agreement. Uh, And that was my passion. I started studying psychology when I was uh, 13, transactional analysis, rational motive therapy. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. I I wanted to be popular in high school, and I think that not much has changed. You know, that desire for belonging is something I realized uh, was not just me. And so the first book I wrote uh, was, after being in international business for 10 years, was Territorial game. Uh, if you've ever experienced someone withholding information from you, or perhaps uh, the the game of strategic noncompliance, where people go, "Sure, let's do that," and you're thinking, well, "You're not even going to try." That
1: <laughs>
2: became, yeah, that became really um, interesting to me. So I asked people to tell me stories. And what I learned is that while I had, you know, very clear, uh, the leadership, I went into leadership training. There was very clear things about you're supposed to be flexible and you're also supposed to be, you know, reliable, which are two different things. Um, I realized that it a lot of the answers are it depends. And um, when people play these territorial games, uh, they're looking to control the narrative. And that wasn't really what I learned uh, was the best path to collaboration. So trying to help people overcome these territorial games, I wrote a book called A Safe Place for Dangerous Truth, the idea that we would actually go into a staff meeting and tell the truth in the meeting instead of mm-hmm. after uh, in the bathroom, after checking for feet, you know, um, telling, well, that's the <laughs> question. It occurred to Uh me we could do better. And then I I wrote two books about storytelling uh, that um, have have done really well in helping people understand not just that you want to tell um, your story so that you can help people come to the same conclusions you've come to by their own process, but understanding other people's stories is a great, great way to understand how they may misinterpret or um alternatively interpret what it is you you say you want and these are the sources of all of the misunderstandings that cause us to feel like we're at
1: odds at work.
2: Mhm. Mhm.
1: So how did you come to write about um women women's power at work versus men's power at work in your in this well latest book?
2: I tell you what, it was how did I resist writing about women's the difference between men and women. I actually first started this book. I did the research twice, um, the first time in 2003. And the research is basically asking men and women, tell me a story about the last time you were powerful. And um, what they told me uh, was... Uh, sorted itself, you know, everybody would tell me a story about achieving a great goal. That's, that's, that's me being powerful. But women told, uh, also told stories about helping someone in a situation where no one would ever have known. Um, they told stories about um, uh, going above and beyond, doing pro bono work at work. And really, I began to understand that this is uh, uh, a source of misunderstanding between men and women that has caused the power struggles in the past, and that instead of thinking one way is better than the other, I see it as uh, evolution handling the paradox of whether we take more care of us or we take more care of them or, or or even, you know, one or the other, that the way that nature and nurture have developed men and women is really a balance so that both, uh, uh, I think women may be slightly uh, predestined, if you will, to attend to multiple narratives where we're tracking um, the kids, at, uh, at the same time we're tracking the, the sales figures, at the same time we're, mm-hmm. we're tracking um, what's going on in the world politically. And, um, and so it gets misunderstood because a lot of the, the literature about power cultivates this idea that you have to develop power over. And mm-hmm. women really prefer power with. And so I took a deep dive in understanding how we misinterpret. Men think women are undermining them and women think men are undermining them. And and really it's just that we're balancing this polarity of taking care of both us and them. And uh, so there's a very functional aspect of combining the two instead of
1: putting them into competition with each other.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, I was looking at, you know, I was reading through your book and I saw that it's made up of all these stories and um and you were sort of looking at the differences in in how women define power based on their stories. Um a lot of
2: women didn't even want to use the word
1: power. Mhm. Have you run across that? Yes. Sort of a scary word, I think. Um, I think because it it means something
2: culturally that is kind of onerous to us. Um, and so the women I asked, they would say, well, what, what do you mean by power? And I would say, I don't know. What do you mean by power? And so then they would go to their personal experiences. And mm-hmm. they would just tell me a story um, that, you know, had happened in their life. And very frequently, these stories were not achieving tangible material goals. They were achieving moral goals.
1: hmm. hmm. Like caretaking. I know uh, you do a lot. Right. Caretaking, yeah. So that's what just popped into my mind when I think about the situations where I had power. A lot of the time it had to do with a successful caretaking experience. And those
2: stories definitely showed up in my research. Um, one, of the, one of the stories that really illustrate how we are ignoring some of the, the more, you know, like am I at work? Am I achieving something that's going to get me a bonus? That's not as as important to us as making sure our mom is getting the right medication, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a timely way. And so we tend, and that's of course why we end up doing the unpaid labor of caretaking because uh, right now our systems don't really recognize these intangible goals.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, when I was thinking about what you said about power and how we don't like to use that word as women, and I think what pops into my mind when I think of uh, women in power is that we think of, you know, the, the vicious woman who's trying to undermine people. It's a very negative way of, of viewing power when we think that we've done something powerful. Um, and and and
2: we and women by and large just reject that idea of power over. Um, right. They they give me definitions that say, well, I don't define power like uh, reg- other people do. And what they don't realize is that that women define power very differently. We just haven't, haven't documented it yet.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And so that's what I was trying to do is to document, you know, what power means to a woman. It's not the same thing as what power means to a man. Not that, you know, it's a, a binary situation. Gender is a continuum. Um, but it still matters. You know, this whole idea of masculine and feminine still still means something to humans. And uh, when we, we think about the power to take care one of, one of the people I interviewed was an ambassador uh, uh, from, from the United States. She said, I will take charge in order to take care. But mm-hmm. the whole idea that, that women get off on taking charge and that's, that's its payoff all by itself is just not true. And there's research where you know competition is just not as interesting to women. Um, they set up games where <laughs> where people would win like an inordinate amount of time um, just to see what would happen. And men would just keep playing those games and keep playing those games and winning, chalking up the wins. Women would peel off. It's like, this is boring. What's happening, uh-huh. you know, in my home? How, how are my family doing? We're, I'd rather talk to my friends.
1: hmm hmm Interesting. <laughs> so, how does that work in the in the workplace? I mean, how does that? How can women um, have that sense, have that perspective of power and still achieve in the workplace as well as men do? Well, before we
2: started to measure every single win and loss,
1: um,
2: there was a natural balance. Um, there was the 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 sense that you know making sure people feel whole was very important, and so men and women, and it's you know it's not a strict split, but they would they would pay attention to not just the sales figures, but do people feel whole? What's happened mm-hmm. is with technology is that with everything being measured, this this myth. Uh, has caused people to misunderstand the myth that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And in my opinion, if you can't measure it, you sure as hell better be managing it. Um, and and so it's this uh, ability to to use stories to share because really, how do you know that your that your people feel whole? That's a, that's that's an intangible goal. Um, mm-hmm. And in the last decade, because it's intangible, it's gotten to be ignored. And now people are beginning to realize. And so you have this popularity with the word empathy. Um, and yet, they don't yet realize that many of the systems that control competitive reasoning and economic theory actually punish generosity as you know, the lack of, of an ability to exploit a weakness, which in a competitive system is kind of an imperative. You Of course you would exploit a weakness. But if you look at the intangible cost of that, it's basically how do you burn your friends? Right. Um, and, and, and so we, it is time for us to get clear that empathy will mean something different to our measurements and and structures, and we need to make sure that we can reward generosity, we can reward trust. Um, A lot of the systems, you know, this constant monitoring uh, that happens in healthcare situations, for instance, has, has led women to leave nursing for what they describe as moral distress. It is so tightly measured that they cannot any longer, be kind or generous, or you know, take that time to sit and listen to someone who perhaps talks a little bit longer than than would be convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, women feel powerless in systems like
1: that. And so, so what I really are they, wanted to make. What are they make... measuring? Yeah, no. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but what are they measuring in, in healthcare that you're referring to? Because that's really curious.
2: I well. Um, with the best of intentions, a lot of uh, measurements come from patient safety. And I've worked with patient safety for, you know, 30 years. Patient safety um, could be a fall risk. And so, for instance, mm-hmm. they're measuring how many people fall. And in order to, to change, you know, to improve the, the uh, fall rate, they'll end up actually strapping people in and binding them mm-hmm. to their bed. And, right. and um, so one of the stories I uh, was told was about how a woman, when they did, you know, you can do a root cause analysis and you, you maybe figure out that this one woman is the one that falls um, more often than others. And so maybe your theory would be to strap her into her bed so she shouldn't fall. But if you talk to her and ask her to share a story with you, Um, What they found is that this woman said, you know, it's the only time I'm touched. And there was an orderly that when she fell in the hallway would pick her up and carry her back to her bed. Mm -hmm. And knowing that that was this craving need of of human touch redefines the problem.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I could... Yeah, I, 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 as I had mentioned to you in emails that I was, you know, my mom was in the hospital for a, a month, and I was up there with her, and yeah. um, I saw things done by he- you know healthcare as you healthcare professionals as you said to prevent what they thought would be uh, a, a negative mark in terms of safety, right. But, didn't, but they didn't really understand the cause. Um, so, for example, the, or the, my mom... Or the human cause. Right. So, for example, my mom was given a, a mask that she had to wear, an oxygen mask that she had to wear at night. And she was taking it off in her sleep. Um, so the doctor ordered um restraints. Oh God, and we oh, absolutely I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, thankfully they never used it because the staff we absolutely we told them you cannot use restraints on my mother. And I'm glad you were there. Said, yep. And the staff said we 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 don't we will not put restraints on your mother. We agree with you. Because they they were not going they were gonna decide the doctor's order um, I said, my mom is not taking off the mask because she's confused. She's taking off the mask because she's sleeping, and in her sleep, she's uncomfortable with something yeah. on her face. Yeah. So, um, you know, all you need to do is, when you notice the mask is off is to remind her that she needs to wear it and put it back on her. And it's as simple as that. She's not going to fight with you. She and it's understands.
2: As simple as that, yes. And so what's happening is that because we've overloaded this whole idea that metrics are going to teach us how to be safe,
3: mm-hmm. we
2: are forgetting that that being safe is, is a, a product of good relationships.
1: And right. so these
2: metrics get used to punish people so that even a nurse who really cares is going to be afraid, well, has reported, uh, some of the stories, has reported being afraid of doing the right thing, and she'd just rather not be a nurse anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So so how how do we make it work? How do we make it work with the men and women working together and being able to use the skills that each each of us has um, well, I, I came. Way.
2: Yeah, I came up with a term that describes all the other animal species. It's called sexual dimorphism, and just like hummingbirds, you know, the the boy hummingbirds are really bright, and the girls are a little bit more uh, dull colored. But then there are other differences, and so that term describes in in all the other species that that evolution has specialized one uh, sex for one thing and the other sex for the other. And and whether it's nature or nurture at this point, we don't have time to argue about that. We need to understand that we've got about 10 years to address climate change and all these other safety issues that we have. and And it's time to look at how the pendulum swung a little bit too far into the, the kind of military idea of power, which is power over, um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and the theories and, and doctrines. Um, for instance, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. That's false. And so understanding that, that with the best of intentions, we took the, the whole power over and quantitative modern monitoring theories a little too far. It's time to swing back, and as we swing back towards a more feminine interpretation of power, and it's you know this is this is not necessarily just women. It's men and women who mm-hmm. who exhibit what our culture has described as feminine traits, which is let's just use the term caregiving. Um, mm-hmm. We use different. We we don't use metrics to uh, evaluate ourselves and each other on on the value of our caregiving, there's an emotional reasoning that goes with sharing our stories and staying in touch uh, that builds trust. And one of the things that we are suffering from is that quantitative monitoring can actually degrade trust. Because basically you're saying, "I don't trust you unless I can monitor every every little thing that you do." And so while it has a positive intent of you know accountability, what it does is it sacrifices inspiration.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And right once, And once we can dial down this whole quantitative uh, approach, we can balance the qualitative story sharing um as a way of you know the research that people have done in Africa for for uh improving he- healthcare did not as, as so much come from the analysis and the quantitative evaluations but it came from gathering the stories in one circumstance the stories that mothers told um of children uh who were thriving as opposed to the stories that women told of children who were not. They learned that they were actually feeding their babies a little bit of adult food, which included some of the uh, microscopic shrimp and and, and plankton around the rice paddies, as well as greens. And their babies were thriving. So it was through a story that they understood how they could improve things not through this, mm-hmm. you know, purely quantitative analysis. Right. Right. And yeah. then you go
1: into... Yeah, go on. Sorry.
2: You go into... Um, uh, women, our hero stories are very often simply witnessing and telling the true story when everybody would rather believe something else. So I finished the book off with the story of Cassandra. And I think a lot of women feel like Cassandra these days. We're warning of these, these, these Im- impeding, you know, threats, whether because we have inadequate health care or because we haven't addressed climate change. And then we don't get believed. Um, and uh, in the Cassandra story, it was because the Trojans wanted to win a war against the Greeks, and the Greeks had convinced them they had won. And so they invited in this massive wooden horse uh, as a symbol of their glorified victory, and, of course, embedded inside the horse were soldiers that once the Trojans had drank to their victory and fell on sleep at night, climbed out of the horse and killed every man, woman, and child. Right. So Sandra warned that this was going to happen, and yet nobody listened to her. And so one mm-hmm. of the things I don't think we have taken from this myth is the understanding that it was the desire to win. It was the desire to be the ultimate victor that caused them to not listen. Um, and and this is recurring in uh, in our society now, where it's like all about winning, and not realizing that we're sacrificing our children's future
1: for mm-hmm. wins
2: that we don't actually need right now. We could we could take take much better care of people by learning how to win only enough for now, as opposed to that ultimate idea that winner takes all.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you talk about that in terms of like climate change, I'm thinking that one, one nation winning above another in a competition does nothing to help the climate. We're all breathing the same air. We're all drinking the same water
2: it actually actively damages the climate. Mm-hmm.
1: Every time, mm-hmm.
2: every, every, every group trying to be first, trying to exploit the weaknesses of others um, and achieve these wins mm-hmm. that, you know, in a competitive system, you look at baseball or, or football or anything, ultimately there's, you know, the Super Bowl and one person wins and everybody else is losing. Um, but, but they start again. They have seasons. And we don't have any seasons to, to, for us to start again. Where where people are pursuing this this ultimate goal of being you know the winner, without understanding that um, that's not a sustainable uh, plan of action.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, this book is very interesting and I really, I, I, I love the conclusions that you draw from these stories and it, you know, it all, it all makes sense to me. And when I look, you know, at, at my life and, and the, the situations I've been and, you know, I, I, my, I've never really had an interest in winning. That's the, and maybe that's right. the reason. Mm -hmm. And
2: I think that that we need to elevate that as as, um, the kind of quality that we're looking for in sustainable systems. And so I couldn't get men to value what women say until I could get women to value what they say. And so collecting these stories is really just showing a mirror to the women who read it that you're not crazy – you really do um have wisdom to impart and uh stop doubting yourself. Uh the women who who I mean they've even proven that having more women on your board increases your return on investment specifically because it reduces um uh uh un, unwise risk.
1: Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm.
2: And so that's what women do is we reduce unwise risk. And um, we do it by sharing stories and by paying attention to multiple narratives instead of just that single competitive narrative. You know, uh, Adichie, who, who did that TEDx talk, did you see the danger of a single story?
1: No, I haven't. I didn't see that.
2: Oh, it's great. It's great. But she talks about, she's an African um and she talks about how you know you have a single story, and you. Uh, she was she was reading uh, books while she's this young African child, um, and the stories glorified Dick and Jane and Britain, and she started to think, well, I don't have apple seeds. This is you know we have different fruits over here. Maybe there's something wrong with us. Um, It's just a great TEDx talk about how if you look at multiple stories in which I believe women have a talent uh, for monitoring, uh, there was some research done recently about uh, parenting uh, uh, and what men do and what women do. And both men and women pay attention to a situation that needs a decision. They pay attention to, you know, the, the the criteria of making a decision. But one of the things that women do that, that men don't do as often is they, they, they monitor multiple narratives, the well-being of a wide variety of people. Uh, and they mm-hmm. anticipate or we anticipate problems that, that if you're just look, keeping your eye on the ball, you wouldn't see. And so, mm-hmm. anticipating these these dangers is one of the the parts of of what women have to offer, and decreasing unwise risks.
1: so so Annette, if if people are interested in in reading your book, this book and and all of the other books that you've written is and I know that you also have a bunch of blogs and you do keynotes and you do writing workshops. What would be the best way to find out more about everything that you do?
2: Well, um, the book is is actually we've got the the ebook, the print book, and the audio book should be up this week. So if you mm-hmm. want to uh, go to Amazon or go to your local bookstore and ask them to order it, they can order it um, that way. My my website, uh, I've got two. One is Annette Simmons. And if people want to email me, I'm Annette at annetteSimmons.com. I welcome that kind of interaction. And then the the website for my book is
1: differentwell.com. Okay, okay, differentwell.com. Okay, yeah. I, I'm going to be posting these links on my posts about this show on my website later tonight. So if people didn't have <coughs> their pen and paper. This- yeah, they could just go there and click on it and it'll take you to yeah. the, those websites. Um And the book
2: is, is is the mm-hmm. different well book is mainly just stories. Um and because I think that's the best way for us to learn the the qualities that women have to offer and the halls of power. Mhm.
1: Mhm. Yeah, it's really, you know, I connected with several of the stories. So I I really enjoyed the book. Um so and um, Thank you so much for being on the program and talking about this. And, and maybe we can have you back in the future to talk about some of the what other a pleasure. work that you've done. Okay. Yeah, that'd be All fun. Days.
2: Thank you so All much. Right. And thank you for the good work that you do.
1: Well, thank you. And um, you have a good evening and we'll be in touch. All righty. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Um, Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
0: Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com.
1: And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years on blogtalkradio.com and on drmarakarpel.com. And as I just mentioned, I'm going to be posting those uh, website links so that you can just click on them later and you can find out more about Annette Simmons and all of her books as well as this book, which is, is very interesting. And, and I really love that perspective and, and to sort of dovetail dub, with that, um, she was talking about how women focus, you know, very often are focused on caregiving, whether caring for um, children, parents, um, caregiving in jobs, caregiving of their friends. And so um, I want to talk about that in particular um, and sort of a continuation of what I spoke about last week when I talked about my um, intense caregiving episode up in New York with my mom, but it has been an ongoing thing from a distance and continues to be. I'm still very involved in caregiving from, from 2000 miles away. And, um, and this is the topic that um, is discussed with most of my friends now. Most of my friends are caregiving for um, an elderly parent or they were caregiving and their parent has passed um, some caregiving for a spouse or a sibling. And so um, it's a, one of the issues that I have found in my work before I even became a caregiver and I was working with caregivers, um, is that very often women especially tend to lose ourselves in the caregiving. And it's either we're a caregiver or or we can live a passionate life. It can't be both. And I don't agree with that, but it, it does take a um, – a balance, and it does take having some tools to be able to have both. Um, but at some point in our life, we're going to be caregivers, and um, are are we willing to to just give up who we are when we're a caregiver? Um, being a caregiver, as Annette was just saying, that can be part of who we are, and actually be our power. Um power isn't about winning. Power is about um achieving what we desire. So that's different than winning. Um so desiring for a positive outcome when someone is ill is um and and, it, and being able to work toward that and help them or to help them to be more comfortable in their illness, that's being, that's power. Um, And it's even more powerful when we are able to do that in a way that does not undermine our own passion for life and our joy and being able to speak up for our loved one is power, being able to push back against the powers that be who, as Annette Kind of gave a clear picture of why it happens that um, things are done that are not the in a, in the interests of our loved one, but they're done so that numbers look good. Um, so it's done in a very um, robotic way rather than dealing with the person. And if we can push back against that and say, "Hey, no, this is not going to work. This we you know." my loved one um, is an actual human being and what you're planning to do is going to cause them more distress, that that's a form of power. Um, and when we are empowered in that way, we can, um, we can do this without losing ourselves. We, when we feel that we are empowered, that we're not, that, that someone hasn't Taken power over us, we can actually still have joy and passion in our lives. Um, so that, you know, she kind of jogged that part of it out of me when I was thinking about that. Um, I felt really good when I was able to speak up and say to the doctor, "No, this is no, this is not right." Um, in the example I gave with the um, restraint. To be able to say no, this, you cannot restrain my mother because of of the mask you 're going to cause more distress and and both my brother and I said that, and we were listened to, and they didn 't um, follow through with that doctor 's order um, when I was last week, I talked about the issue of hope, and I had a lot of hope in the situation because I saw the signs that my mom Could possibly get better It was not a hopeless situation And the doctor Who was the attending physician on this Kept trying to convince my brother and I That it was hopeless and we should give up hope And giving up hope would have led to a negative outcome Because we wouldn't have pushed the specialist To increase the medication That actually helped her to get better She's doing great so help is really important and and the power to be able to speak up and be assertive and say, no, I'm not going to let you, um, let you give up on my loved one. And I'm not going to give up on my loved one, even though you're telling me that that's what I should do because you said so. Um, and there's a lot of work, that's been done um, in the area of hope. And I mentioned last week the work of um, doctors Casey Gwynn and Chan Hellman and their book, Hope Rising, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life. And um, Dr. Hellman, Chan Hellman, actually has agreed to be interviewed on, on this program. So Keep your eyes open. It'll be coming up soon. We don't have the date set yet, but he has agreed to talk about his research at the University of Oklahoma on and the benefits of hope. And that's what this book, Hope Rising, that he and um, Dr. Gwyn wrote is about. And their definition of hope is the belief that a thriving future is possible and you have the power to make it so. So, in a situation as a caregiver, as I mentioned, um, having hope um, would mean that you believe that that there is a possibility that your loved one can get through the whatever acute situation you're in and that you have the power to speak up for them and to do whatever you can to make that possible. So you can't perform miracles. You can't um, force someone to live when they're not going to live, but you can do whatever you can to speak up and to use your power to say, hey, these are the reasons why I think that my loved one has a chance, and I want you to do what you can to make that so. um, So part of hope, is also what I've described in my, in my book, The Passionate Life, um, and that is realistic optimism. So it's not based on unrealistic goals, but um, having optimism means that you believe not only that there's a possibility that the positive outcome will occur, In whatever situation it is, whether it's a caregiving situation or your own um, goals in life, but it's also understanding that there are obstacles that you have to overcome and having the optimism that you can do whatever is possible, you know, whatever you can to overcome these obstacles And furthermore, if you're not able to overcome uh, overcome the obstacles, if the outcome is not what you had wanted, that you will be able to handle it, that you'll be able to deal with it. That's part of uh, realistic optimism, is knowing that you did, knowing that you, when you, when all is done, all is said and done, if the outcome isn't what you had hoped for, that you'll still be able to deal with it because you know that you did everything that you possibly could to try to reach the outcome that you wanted. So that's a really important part of it is that you didn't give up, that you kept pushing, it didn't work out, but now you you know that you did everything that you could. And that makes a big difference. And I'm going to be working on some blogs about my experience, Um, further on what happened, but I want to talk just a little bit more about connecting to your passion. So having that feeling of hope, um, having that feeling that you did everything you could to make the situation um, turn out the way that you wanted it to, um, very important parts of it, but also having gratitude. For, for what you already have. And if it's in a caregiving situation, having gratitude for that relationship, for that time with your loved one. Um, if, if you are caring for somebody who is very ill, um, while it's extremely stressful and you might have had to give up a lot of the normal activities that you were doing to achieve your own goals, um, first of all, it's, you know, you will get back to doing that at some point in the future and remind yourself of that. But at this point, this is the focus. This is the most important thing. And there's a lot of meaning that this can give your life, that you are, um, you are performing your dharma. You are performing your purpose in life. At this moment, this is your purpose. And to be grateful for that and to be grateful for that special time that you're having with your loved one um, while they are going through a really rough time and you're there helping them, that's also a really special time that you're spending with them, that mm-hmm. you were there for them in their time of need. And that gives your life more passion. And that's something that you can look back on with gratitude, that I'm glad that I spent that time. I'm glad that I was there for them and we had those special moments together. And having gratitude for this day, for anything that you can find in the day, is a really important part of um, keeping your passion and keeping your joy, even in times of difficulties. Um, When you contribute in positive ways to another person's life or helping your community or helping the world, it brings your life more meaning and joy. When we do things that are just for fun, that's great. That's nice to do something that you just, you're just doing it for fun. But that's not a passion. That doesn't bring meaning to your life. It's just you're having fun, and eventually the fun will wear off, and then what next? But when you're doing something that you know is is important and it's helping other people, that's pretty pretty big, and that's pretty um, meaningful and purposeful, and that's something that we all look for in life, is to find purpose and meaning. Um, having a passionate life is not just about having fun every day. It's really about doing, contributing something to another person's life, to your community, or to the world. And bringing your gift, what you have to offer, what you're able to do for the world, into the world. That's passionate living. And it isn't, it is, actually isn't always fun. Living a passionate life isn't about having fun every minute of the day. It's being, it's being able to connect to that fire within you. And that will bring joy. But the joy is not there at every moment because it also takes hard work. Um, there's a lot of emotion involved. It's, it's not all joyful. But finding those moments where you can have a sense of humor, um, where you can laugh, that, that is an important part of staying the course and staying optimistic and bringing joy, bringing that passion into your life and being able to keep doing it. So having a sense of humor, even in the darkest of times, is really important. Um, it completely changes a negative, pessimistic view into a more positive one. Um, having a sense of humor in a stressful situation turns the problem into something absurd, um, and it takes away the power of negative beliefs, and which the negative beliefs leave a, lead us down the road to giving up and to giving up hope, and it immediately reduces the stress around it. So laughing every day is a really, um, important way of continuing to connect to our passion, even in stressful times and, and when, and when you're caregiving and finding ways to de-stress in general, really important. Um, exercising every day, if you can squeeze it in. Um, doing some form of relaxation or meditation really important connecting to people who you feel are supportive and um, who you enjoy, whose company you enjoy very important, and finding something to do um, that makes you feel good during the day, even in the midst of um, a stressful time these are these are important ways to Stay passionate, even in the midst of intense caregiving. And, you know, if you enjoy writing and that's a passion of yours, then maybe finding some time, even during this stressful time, to sit down and write for 10 minutes. Write about your situation. Turn your situation into um, Something that you can use for your passion, you can write about it, you can paint about it. Take notes if you can't sit down and write something really coherent. Just write an outline, just write down thoughts that you'll come back to later. Okay, so i'm gonna I'm gonna end that discussion here, and um, we'll I'll be talking about it ongoing for a while. And let me tell you what's coming up. So next week, we don't know who the guest is yet. So stay tuned on my Facebook page, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, to find out what's coming up next week. We will have a show. We just don't know who it is yet. And, again, if you want to hear this evening's program again and get the website links that we talked about on the program Um, Go to my website, com and that will be posted later tonight along with the podcast, and you can also listen to this show in as soon as five minutes from now by going directly to blogtalkradio.com, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com, slash your golden years, Uh, or you can go to Apple Podcasts um, to my page there. Just look up Dr. Marikarpel and your golden years, and you'll find my Page on Apple Podcasts and all the podcasts will be, be, will be there, including this one. And for future shows, for upcoming events, for blogs that I write, go follow me on Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions, and sponsored by AmightyGoodTime.com. Um, thank you to my guest, Annette Simmons, and thank you to Art. And thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe.
3: Comes a time when you're all alone. Comes a time, gotta write that song. May not make any sense at all. But it's up to you, keep a smile on your face. Now I've been young mostly every day. Just like you, don't you ever change. Cause this world's getting pretty old. And it's up to you, keep a smile on your face. Butterflies down. Butterflies down Butterflies down Now don't forget who wrote you this song Ooh. Cause there'll be times you'll feel all alone in this world Ooh. So Greg don't forget this song is for Sarah Renee, and you
0: Yeah <laughs>